Hello, survivalists. This is the Crux True Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Casey McIntosh, joined by Julie Henningsen, who will be leading our story for us today. Hello, Julie. How are you doing? I'm so excited to hear whatever you have. Okay, this is a good one, Casey. I'm excited to share it with you. But I have to warn you, today's story, I'm breaking away from our kind of usual survival story theme. This is a well-known story. You may have actually heard it before or at least heard about it. I'm sure some of our listeners have. It takes place in the early 1960s in Berlin, Germany. And it's really a story of political survival, more so than kind of outdoor adventure survival, which is the realm that we usually talk about. I read a book about this years ago called Tunnel 29, and I just thought it was such a fascinating story. It's something that's stuck with me since then. So I decided it was a good one to share. Have you heard it before? Do you know, does that ring a bell, Tunnel 29? I don't, not yet, but I guess as you get into it, we'll see if it's familiar okay. or not. So there've been other podcasts and articles and actually lots of media surrounding this story over the years, but it's perfect for our podcast because it is all about survival of the human spirit, perseverance in a very challenging situation when all hope seems to have run out. It's a true story. It's unbelievable against all odds an account of really remarkable effort and tenacity on our heroes. So to set up the story, I'm just going to back up in history a little bit and kind of do a little reminder about world history post-World War II era. So when Germany lost the war, there was a lot of contention over who would be in charge of the country of Germany and the city of Berlin. It was decided in 1961 that Germany would be split right down the middle. The West would go to the US, the UK and France, and the East would go to the Soviets. So as a result of that decision on Sunday, August 13th, 1961, pretty much overnight, about 10,000 soldiers built a wall dividing Berlin from East to West. Berlin residents woke up on that morning and looked out their windows and saw this wall. And pretty much whatever side of the wall you woke up on that day was where you were meant to stay. That's such a weird thought, isn't yeah. it? Hard to imagine. At first, the wall was somewhat open in terms of passage. There was sort of ways to go from one side to the other. But many people pretty quickly started moving to the west moving out of the east abandoning east berlin and moving to the west and that turn of events was problematic for the soviets it affected the economy it was like an embarrassment so many people started moving from the east to the west kind of abandoning east berlin and that was problematic for the soviets it affected the economy it was an embarrassment kind of a pr problem so they knew they had to do something about it. They had to kind of crack down. It was decided by East Berlin Soviets that the wall was to be fortified with barbed wire, armed guards, and open passage was banned unless you had like a foreign passport or kind of the right documents, which most people at that time didn't. This happened so suddenly that families were split. Parents were separated from their children. Husbands were separated from their wives. And as a result, pretty quickly, there are a lot of escape attempts, a lot of people trying to get out of the East, get into the West. They would 
try and jump over the wall. They would climb buildings next to the wall and try and jump out of windows to clear the wall and sometimes be caught on the other side by awaiting West Berliners. Eventually, the Ministry for State Security in East Berlin, which was known as the Stadt, that's an abbreviation for Stadtsicherheit or something like that, like the Soviet <laughs> ruling government, decided that they would shoot on sight anybody that decided to try and escape. So the stakes got a lot higher for would-be escapees at that point. This was sort of months into the existence of the wall. Did anyone, did, were there any warnings that were cited? Like, hey, by the way, this is going to happen to you. Or was it just like all of the other interventions? Just like, we're just going to go for it when, it, yeah, when the time I think occurs. I got the impression that the warning was people were getting shot and dying in the streets. <sighs> yeah, that's terrible. terrible. So this, this state security service of East Germany, the Stasi, during that time, they had really a bad reputation of being pretty ruthless, being sneaky and being really widespread and kind of covert, both in the East and the West of Berlin, often undercover. So there was this real theme of not really being able to trust anybody, friends and neighbors, not knowing whose side, you know, everybody was on. Really, there was a real nobody can trust nobody vibe going on at this point. That's really good for morale. Good for community building, you know, all the things that <laughs> Raising children. The good things yeah. in life. Another approach that the Stasi were known for is oftentimes when criminals were apprehended, they were given a chance to either become a Stasi informant and, you know, turn on their community or go to prison. So understandably, you know, people turned on each other and many informants were born out of necessity. And there was just a lot of distrust in the arrangement. So that's the background. The story of Tunnel 29 surrounds our main character. His name is Joachim Rudolph. He was an East Berliner who found himself on the east side of the wall the day it went up, along with his family and friends. He was an engineering student, and he decided not to escape. Part of the reason he didn't want to escape was that when he was six years old, he and his family had tried to escape the small village that he was living in by horse and cart actually to get to Berlin, but they were captured by Soviets and that resulted in his father's death. He never saw his father after that incident. So he really oh, understood. Yeah, he had terrible. a very clear understanding of the risks associated with trying to escape a situation. So at first he decided that wasn't something he wanted to relive and he tried to do his best in East Berlin. But as time went on, things just got worse. The media was censored, the economy was dwindling, his options were becoming limited. So he did wake up one day and decide enough is enough. He was a young man, he didn't tell his family or friends, but he decided he needed to escape. He needed to get to the West. So he kind of checked out different options and found this big open field that was outside of the city. There was a guard tower staffed with Stasi watchmen but he thought, if I wait till a really dark night, I can crawl across this field and possibly make it unseen to the river that divided the east from the west at that point and get into West Berlin. So he waited. And one night, sure enough, cloudy, dark night, he and a buddy actually belly crawled slowly across this field, kind of glancing up periodically to see if they were being spotted by these guards in the watchtower. 
And against all odds, they made it to the river. They swam across the river and he got to, to West Berlin unscathed. That just the thought of that crawling across that field gives me full body chills. Just thinking about the way yeah, that must just have been. At any time, it could be over. That was a huge risk. And it wasn't a decision that he made lightly, but fortunately, it was successful for him. So when he got to West Berlin, he was kind of lost. He was not used to having f- these freedoms and options and choices. He didn't have anything to his name. He didn't have any family. He didn't have any friends. And it really kind of felt overwhelming. He struggled a bit, but decided to continue his engineering studies at a local university and enrolled in school. And a few months into his program, he was approached by two Italian students named Mimo and Gigi. They wanted to recruit Joachim to covertly help them build a tunnel under the wall from the west to the east. They had some friends who had a small child in the east that they were trying to help get to the west. And their idea was to tunnel under the wall and sort of smuggle their friends back through. I was just going to say, they were sitting around trying to plan on how to make this work. And they're like, oh, I know what we need to do. We need to go to the engineering department immediately. Yes, they were engineering (laughs) students as well. So yeah, that's that's probably why they kind of thought the way they did and, you know, thought that this was a doable idea. So Joachim thought long and hard and maybe because of his experiences as a child or despite his experiences as a child, he did ultimately decide to help them. So Mimo and Gigi were a resource. They were foreigners. So they had passports that allowed them to travel freely between East Berlin and West Berlin. And they had already identified a building a couple blocks east of the wall in East Berlin that would be a good exit point, they thought, for their tunnel. It was kind of a cottage with a cellar underneath. And they thought if they could tunnel under that and then up through the cellar, the escapees could just walk into this building and then be escorted down to the tunnel and under the wall. They were even able to make a copy of the key to this building in one of their ventures over to East Berlin. So they felt like they were good to go on the east side. They just had to find a place on the west to start the tunnel. So they used maps and engineering skills and they identified a factory. It was actually a cocktail straw factory on the west side of the wall that was in a good location (laughs) for them to start their tunnel. And they approached the owner of the factory and told them that they were a band and they needed a place to rehearse which obviously was their cover story. The owner saw right through it. He himself had escaped from East Berlin not that long ago, and he knew exactly what they wanted the factory for and what they were going to do. Wow, that's a big risk that he had to, you know, that's a really risky thing to say yes to. I guess you could always say, I have no idea. They just, they were going to practice their band. How would I know? Right. Otherwise, yeah. It could know? have been a, I'm going to look the other way situation because they did all, they ended up doing all their work at night and nobody else in the factory knew what was going on. They were able to really keep it on the down low. So this factory owner was kind of happy to let them use this factory as the launching point. And soon they recruited about three other male engineering students, all who had escaped from the East at one point in the not so distant past. And they got to digging. 
this small band of diggers, they started on May 9th, 1962. They had like a chisel and a hammer and a few shovels, some tools, pickaxe that they'd swiped from a local cemetery. Or I think one of them worked at a cemetery, so I won't say swiped, we'll say borrowed. And they started digging this tunnel and it wasn't long before, as you can imagine, they just hit this hard clay. It was hard work, brutal digging, way harder than they thought it was gonna be because of the thickness and density of this clay, the lack of really good tools. They couldn't use any power tools because they would be heard. So they had to be quiet. They had to whisper. They had to lay down in the tunnel horizontally and they put their feet at the end that they were digging on and just kind of use the tools to try and dig further in the tunnel at their feet, which if you can picture that would be like so ergonomically challenging and wrong. Wrong. I was going to say, I have two thoughts when you're describing this digging. I'm thinking of the movie where the guy escapes from prison. Making oh, a tiny Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank that movie? Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Which is like one of yeah, the best agreed. movies of all time. And then I'm think I'm thinking about the guys in the mines ah, in Butte when yes. you were describing. That's right. What it was like to mine in Butte and how you work all day long to just Oh yeah, you dig like a progress foot every five weeks or something. I can't remember. Something that feels like <laughs> yes. no progress at all. Right. So yeah, the digging was slow and just terribly hard. And they were doing it at night. They'd work in eight hour shifts over the night for people. They'd fill this little cart with earth and then they'd haul the cart out and dump it and bring the empty cart back. So it was quite a challenging operation. A tedious. That's tedious. the word I'm looking for. It was quite a tedious operation. So they were starting to lose hope. And here's where it gets interesting. They needed money. They needed more diggers, better tools. They just needed some funding. So they kind of started putting the word out, but they had to be so careful because Stasi are everywhere and people will be thrown in prison. Even West Berliners could be thrown in prison for trying to organize operations like this. So they were really putting, you know, their safety on the line. So meanwhile, there was this NBC television producer in New York. His name was Ruben Frank. And he had the idea totally independently that, gosh, wouldn't it be cool and revolutionary if I could find an escape operation in progress, film it, and, you know, create some television journalism surrounding that. That would be remarkable. People would really be into that. So he had reached out to some of his contacts with NBC in Berlin and said, hey, if, you know, if you hear rumors about anybody in West Berlin organizing escape plans, let me know, put me in contact with them. So through some kind of indirect communication, these tunnelers were put in contact with Ruben Frank in New York and they struck a deal. And he agreed to supply and support financially their operation if they allowed him to show up with camera crews and film it, not only film the escape, but film the tunnel digging. And that was a huge risk, but they felt like they didn't have any other option. So they made the deal. 
Yeah, it's like on one hand, you're winning the lottery. And on the other hand, you're, I don't know, you're literally putting everything on the line. This was either going to work or somebody was going to probably end up in prison. Or dead. Or dead. Yeah, the tunnel was like one meter by one meter. So if you can picture that, it's kind of like the size of a coffin almost, maybe a little bigger, but really tight, claustrophobic. They got to a point where they there wasn't adequate oxygen far enough down into the tunnel. So with this new money and funding, they were able to buy a ventilator and put stovepipe in there to pipe oxygen in. They put a string of electric lights. They got this old World War II kind of wind-up phone, and they had a phone in one end of the tunnel they could call and let people know outside that the cart was full. They were able to hook up a motor and a winch to pull the cart out each time it needed to be dumped with the tunnel digging. So it became a much more efficient operation. I was just thinking, like, what an impressive operation. Whoever would have even thought this was possible? And it was actually making me think of this gym that I go to. When things get really hard, the instructor's always like, find a way, make a way. And that's what I keep thinking about as you're describing all of these things. Yeah, that is totally the theme of this story. And this is just the beginning, Casey. You are not going to believe what where this goes from here, which is why you're probably going to have to edit some of this out. But that's okay. So they're plugging along. They were able to recruit about 12 more people. And they didn't tell these people about the film deal. Only the original, like, four people knew about the deal with NBC because it would have deterred other diggers from joining. But eventually they had this team of folks that were happy to help. And again, most of them were wanting to help because they had loved ones in East Berlin that they wanted to get across. So they were motivated Okay, so, all right, here's where our story takes a unfortunate turn. They're getting close to where they need to be, and they hit a water line. And the tunnel starts to fill with water. And so they are trying to pump the water out. They can't keep up with it. They even take the risk of contacting someone in the water department, kind of with a cover story about getting help to fix this broken water pipe. And it does get fixed without them kind of being the operation being jeopardized or uncovered, but they just cannot manage to pump out all of the water that's accumulated in the tunnel. They feel like this is the end. There's no moving forward from here. And once again, just in the moment of what seems like utter defeat, they are connected with another group of tunnel diggers, a smaller group that has an abandoned tunnel nearby. They had started their own tunnel and run out of resources, run out of time, run out of people and needed help on their tunnel. So they decide to join up, pool resources, come together and focus on this other tunnel that had since been abandoned and was actually in much worse shape than the tunnel they had first started working on. This other team of diggers were not engineers, so they didn't have lights. Their tunnel was more narrow. (laughs) It was going in the wrong direction. It was sloped downhill. There was a lot of corrections that they needed to make. So 
<laughs> yes. demoralizing is what that is. You're like, here's this beautiful tunnel we created, and now we have to give it up for this terrible yeah, one this over terrible, here. We got to fix this terrible tunnel and turn, you know, turn a lemon into <laughs> lemonade. But again, undeterred. So they come together, they, they fix the tunnel, they get it under a building in East Berlin, not obviously the first building that they were after, but one that will work. And they pick a messenger to go, somebody with a passport to go over to East Berlin and let all of these escapees, which is about a hundred people waiting to get word that it was go time to execute this operation. So it was meant to take place on August 7th, 1962, between 4 and 7 p.m. And this would have been about four months after they started the original digging. So what they didn't know, Casey, is that one of the members of the other tunnel digging team that they had paired up with was a Stasi informant. So, yes. No. He was a mole. And he was an informant because he himself had been apprehended by the Stasi trying to smuggle cigarettes across the border. And he was also homosexual, which was illegal. So they had given him a choice to go to prison or become an informant. And he chose to be an informant. He infiltrated this tunnel digging group. And the day before the operation was supposed to take place, he went to the Stasi and gave him every detail of what was to unfold. You know what I think he should have done? I think he should have just used the tunnel to sell exactly. cigarettes. Capitalize really. on that. Work, <laughs> work smarter, right. not harder. Exactly. Yeah. What the heck? So unfortunately, the diggers didn't know that they were outed. The escapees didn't know. They moved forward with this pretty elaborate plan. There were helpers kind of set up on the streets in East Berlin near the house where they were all supposed to meet to enter the tunnel. And they had signals like if you see somebody combing their hair, it means it's all clear. Keep going. If you see somebody bending over and tying their shoe, it means danger, danger, turn around, get, don't go. So they had a pretty elaborate setup. And like I said, 100 people were slated to try and escape that night. And many of them picked up that there was like a lot of plain clothes, like something Something's suspicious. Going on. Yeah. Realized, yeah, this doesn't feel right. right. And they kind of aborted the plan. Yeah. Many of the escapees fortunately recognized that something suspicious was going on and didn't feel right about it and kind of walked away, aborted the plan at the last second. This is like after they had, you know, gotten their kids in their finest clothes and planning to never enter their homes again. But others were not so fortunate. And as they approached this house that the Stasi knew the tunnel ended at, they were apprehended. They were thrown in a van, driven straight to prison, a prison in East Berlin. 43 people were imprisoned during that time because of their escape <sighs> attempt. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Well, and you can you just imagine what the the living conditions must have been like in that prison? I would imagine. Oh, it was terrible. terrible. Yes. Yeah. This book I read called Tunnel 29, which I recommend by Helena Merriman, who's really researched this story and interviewed many of the people involved. She describes the conditions in this prison, Hanschenhausen Prison in East Berlin, and it's not pretty. Many of them were sentenced to years in prison, separated from families. And even the tunnel digging team member who was the messenger who had crossed into East Berlin to give the message was imprisoned, caught and imprisoned for seven years. So another incredible part of this chapter of the story is that Joachim, our main character, and one other digger had volunteered to be in East Berlin at the end of the tunnel and help the escapees enter the tunnel. They didn't know that their plan was compromised and they were in the living room of this home. The Stasi officers were just out in the home as well, just outside the living room door, about to break in, raid the operation and arrest them. When they overheard through the door, they overheard Joachim say, my pistol is jammed. I need to use the machine gun. And they realized that these tunnel diggers were armed with machine guns. So the Stasi at that moment decided, okay, we're not going to break through the door. We're going to wait for backup. So in this waiting period, Joachim and his partner were able to get a message on their radio that said, stop, come back. We're compromised, bail. And they quickly dropped back into the tunnel and headed back to West Berlin and amazingly made it through the tunnel without getting caught. Hey, Julie, how, what was the distance of the tunnel? How long would it take to Yeah, cross? it was 400 meters and it took about 12 minutes to crawl through. At warp no, speed. No, that wouldn't be at warp speed. 12 minutes. The tunnel diggers themselves probably could cross it much faster than that because they'd gone back and forth it so many times. But it, it was 12 minutes. Um, right. Yeah, for somebody who's in it for the first time. Okay, so another, def another defeat in our story here. And you'd think that they'd throw in the towel at this point. And for a period of time, they did. They watched the trials of these escapees, of their um, fellow tunnel digger that was arrested. And they saw with horror the outcome that those folks had faced. Some of them were family members. It could either cause a feeling of defeat or just a feeling of, I'm not going to let these people yeah. win. I think in this case, it was the latter. They just redoubled their energy. And what they did at this point was they went back to their original tunnel, the highly engineered, well thought out electric lit tunnel. And it had dried up at this point. The water had dried. So they decided to just pick up where they left off. They did it with a much smaller crew. They didn't know how their plan was outed. They didn't know who the informant was or how the Stasi knew about their operation. So nobody trusted anybody at this point. And they 
worked as quietly and as low key with as small of number of people as they could. But they went back to that original tunnel and they just picked up where they left off. So now their motivation is kind of back and they're moving along. They make it into East Berlin. The tunnel is in East Berlin when sure enough, they break another water line and the tunnel starts to fill with water again. Ugh. So this time they realize, you know, it's this is either really the end, like we need to just walk away because we can't call the East Berlin Water Department and have them fix the tunnel. But they also realized that the tunnel was sort of downhill sloped. So the water was pooling at the end of the tunnel. It wasn't running up the tunnel. So most of the tunnel was clear and was going to remain clear of water for a short time. So they had the final idea of our only option right now is to just tunnel straight up from where they were and just land at wherever they landed, which was very dangerous because it was really close to the wall in East Berlin. And the closer you get to the wall, the more heavily patrolled it is, the more armed the guards are, the more people really on the lookout for suspicious activity. They knew it was a huge risk, but they'd come this far. So they went for it anyway. They started tunneling up and they just popped out in a cellar beneath what seemed like maybe an abandoned apartment which thought, yeah, they thought well, gosh, that could work well. It was apartment number seven, which was helpful to know because they needed to tell the next group of would-be escapees where to go to access the tunnel. So it's feeling like all systems go, feeling like the green light, they've gotten a second, third, fourth, fifth chance at this point. They just need a messenger to go across East Berlin somebody they just need a messenger to go across to east berlin somebody with a passport to spread the word and nobody wanted to do it so mimo our italian engineering student who concocted this operation from day one talked his girlfriend ellen into being the messenger and it was coincidentally her 21st birthday she hadn't even known that he was involved in any of this operation. She lived outside of Berlin in another part of Germany and had flown in to visit him for a weekend for her birthday. And when she got there, he gave her this proposition that she was not expecting, asking her to use her passport, go over to East Berlin and be the messenger for this very risky operation. She had to think about it. This is the way it went down. She goes over there. She thinks, oh, he says, I have a proposal for you. And she thinks, oh, you're going to put a ring on my finger. And he's like, actually, no. Actually, I want you to go risk your life and limb. Yeah, that was not the proposal I think she was expecting. But I guess Ellen was an adventuresome spirit. She was willing to help. So she agreed to it. And this is where I feel like it gets really interesting. The plan was for these escapees who were mostly families, many with even infants, babies, to go hang out at these three different pubs in East Berlin, which were all kind of near the wall, and just wait for a signal. And they had already indicated what each signal would be. The NBC folks from New York had caught wind that it was go time for this escape operation. So they had flown in with all their camera crews. They were set up 
in the West Berlin side of the tunnel entrance. They had set up on the third or fourth story of a building in West Berlin, right next to the wall that had a really nice view over the wall of apartment number seven, where they could see people coming and going. And they had this whole operation kind of ready to go to capture this on film. So Ellen was to go to East Berlin and look up at that apartment building in West Berlin where the NBC crew were. And when she saw them wave a white sheet out the window, she knew that meant go. Green light, let's get this party started. So she hung out, she saw the white sheet get waved and she wandered into the first pub. And as soon as she walked in, she could see everyone was looking at her. There were families that had clearly been there for hours and just this vibe of anticipation that she could feel in the air. So in the first pub, she was supposed to walk up to the bartender and buy a box of matches. That was the signal. So she bought the matches and then she turned around kind of dramatically with this matchbook and like very obviously put it in her purse and walked out. And she could tell just by kind of looking around that, that people got the signal and understood. And then from there, she went to the second pub. And in the second pub, she was supposed to order a glass of water and drink it. So she walks up to the bartender, orders a glass of water, turns around dramatically and chugs this glass of water in a way that it's so clear for everyone to see. And she gets the vibe that everyone saw it and all systems go. And then the third pub, she's supposed to walk in and order a cup of coffee and drink it. So she walks up to the bartender. I feel like I'm telling a joke. <laughs> I feel like you are too. She walks up to the bartender, orders a cup of coffee. And the bartender says, we don't have coffee. We don't serve coffee. And she doesn't know what to do. She's flustered. She did not expect that. So she takes a moment and just decides that she's going to kind of create a big scene and complain loudly about the fact that they don't sell coffee or they don't have coffee so that everyone can hear that she's trying to order coffee. And then she decides to order a glass of cognac because it also starts with the letter C, which she gets and takes and turns around and drinks in a really obvious way and kind of really just hopes that the message was conveyed, which it was. So after her pub run, her three-stop pub run, these escapees that had been waiting for her kind of slowly and casually stroll out of the pub one by one. They stroll towards apartment number seven, and they're kind of, it's timed in a way that they're supposed to kind of filter in one family at a time, which didn't work as well as they thought. Many of them were kind of showing up at once, which kind of made everybody on edge. But they come to the door and Joachim and another tunnel digger are there waiting for them. And there's tunnel diggers stationed throughout the tunnel in different locations. This part I thought was really cool to just be present and offer words of reassurance and help these folks as they're crawling through the tunnel in case they start to panic. They were there to help carry babies so that moms and dads could crawl on their own. And the tunnel diggers, the tunnelers would carry their babies. 
and the NBC film crew was waiting at the end of the tunnel to catch the exit at the West. So you can actually easily find this footage, this film footage online. The camera was running for a really long time, just showing this empty kind of tunnel hole. And then suddenly at the base of the tunnels, about four and a half meters down before it went horizontal, suddenly at that, at that point in the tunnel, you just see this hand appear and a white hand bag. This is in the camera footage. And then you see Evelyn, the first escapee to make it through the tunnel. She crawls out and then her little daughter, Madeline, or no, and then her little daughter, Annette, is carried out, 15-month-old baby. A tunneler is carrying her and reunites Annette with her mom. And then a steady stream of escapees, 29 in total, make it through this tunnel over the period of the next few hours, maybe until about 11 o'clock at night. And remember, the tunnel, meanwhile, is filling with water at the east end. So the window of opportunity is, is starting to close as the night goes on. But the tunnel became known as Tunnel 29 because in the end, 29 East Berliners were successfully able to cross and aided out the other side unharmed. And, and it was all caught on film. That's so cool. I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, so you can yeah I'm sure to that video. What a huge effort for those 29. I mean, obviously incredible. Yes. Probably fewer people than they had fewer hoped. Fewer people than they had hoped because of the original, you know, hundred who were going to try and make that attempt. But interestingly, at that time, it was the biggest single escape operation, the largest number of people to escape in one kind of escape operation regarding the Berlin Wall. So it, it was pretty impactful. Yeah, the tunnel was still slowly filling with water. So finally, Joachim on the East End had to call it. He had to decide that the tunnel was closed so he himself could get back through, which he did. And he reported just having this like feeling of elation, of success, the best feeling that he'd ever had about having accomplished this feat and having kind of worked against all this adversity to reach this incredible goal. That is so amazing. Yeah, it's really amazing. Just the stick to that this group of people had, the dedication. And there is some pretty interesting follow-up that I'll and, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the amount of teamwork and trust. And I'm sure that all of those people, they felt like family to one another after all of those weeks and weeks of working together and trusting each other, you know, so deeply. Yeah, exactly. And interestingly, on that note, they had a party a couple nights later where all the tunnelers got together with all the escapees. And it wasn't necessarily like an air of celebration because this was a really difficult time for people trying to, you know, escape difficult circumstances. But they had this bond, this connection. And I mentioned Evelyn and her daughter, Annette, were the first two to kind of emerge from the tunnel. Well, Joachim, who had never met Evelyn before that day, befriended her and they got to know each other over years after this event and eventually fell in love and 10 years later married and he became the stepfather to baby Annette. So he gained a family through this ordeal as well. Gosh, this story has I know, everything. Julie. It has everything. It's <laughs> such a great it's such a great story. And here's another 
interesting bit. Ellen went on to marry Mimo and they stayed happily married for decades. Ellen is alive and well to, to this day. Mimo has passed away. Joachim was awarded one of Germany's highest awards probably about 10 years ago. That's called the Federal Cross of Merit for his work in the tunnel. He still lives in Berlin with his wife, Evelyn. Wow. And Ruben Frank edited all of his footage and NBC released the footage on December 10th, 1962. And it was the most watched programming ever in history. It was even watched by President Kennedy. 18 million people watched it. And it kind of is known to have revolutionized TV journalism. So you're saying that is the first thing that ever yeah. went viral before being viral. Exactly. It was like the birth of reality <laughs> TV. <laughs> And then the last statistic I have for you is at least 140 people were killed or died at the Berlin Wall trying to escape before it was finally pulled down on November 9th, 1989, which I actually remember. I actually remember that too. Yeah. So yeah, we'll post some of the video footage and a link to other media that tell this incredible story. That's so cool. We got to get some of these people on here. I wonder if there would be a, I wonder, everybody knows English. So I feel like that wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> yeah. Some of them might, some of them might be getting <laughs> up there, but yeah, there's definitely folks around that had a firsthand involvement with this story. So that's what I've got for you today. <laughs> okay. That's fine. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Before we wrap up, we'd like to ask for your support in spreading the word about the crux true survival stories if you enjoyed today's episode please take a moment to visit our instagram page at the crux podcast we encourage you to share our latest posts on your stories and help us reach more fellow survival enthusiasts and storytellers if you haven't already please consider leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform your feedback means a lot to us and helps us continue to bring you stories of survival if you have any stories that you'd like to share with us or topics you'd like us to explore, feel free to write us at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for your support. Wishing you all a fantastic week filled with inspiration and adventure. That sounds good, Julie. I also just wanted to say thank you to everyone. When I got the year wrap up of our podcast, people were sharing this podcast through text message the most, which I thought was interesting. But I just appreciate you guys sharing this with friends that you think would like to listen. So thanks so much. Have a good week.